People come to the San Francisco Bay Area for many reasons, a spectacular natural setting, a sophisticated lifestyle, and unique professional opportunities. Those seeking these qualities will find all that and more at Hacienda, where you can work, live, and grow. A Hacienda location means having the best of everything within easy reach. Whether it's world-class restaurants, theaters, and museums, the best learning institutions in the country, or some of the finest services available. That particularly applies to businesses wanting the best address to have easy access to needed resources, being among the industry leaders, and knowing that you are part of a region that leads the world in innovation. The result, an unbeatable combination that leads to success, and that is what you will find at Hacienda. Find out more by visiting Hacienda on the web at hacienda.org. Jill Jago's path to architecture and workplace strategy was not a straight line from one opportunity to the next, and it rarely is. Her understanding of the trends and what shapes a successful organization, however, has been deeply impacted by her experience and work throughout the engineering and architecture world that she has called home for years. Today, she leads the Advanced Strategy Group at B+H in Seattle and helps organizations globally think about solutions that not always include a building. She also drives innovative thinking on sustainability and how post-pandemic, our world is likely going to change in ways that will transform the way we work, live, and coexist with others. Jill, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you. How are how are things? How are you doing in this uh, mid, where are we, mid-early, mid to mid-July time frame? We've gone through our first heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, right? And we've survived. Yeah. Absolutely. That was quite a surprise. I don't think anyone was quite prepared for that. I, I have to say I'm really enjoying these cool mornings and the sun peeking out in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. It, it is nice when the temperature dips sort of, you know, below 60 again. It's, <laughs> it's so it's so wonderful, which is sort of funny. I think only people in the Pacific Northwest say that in the summer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, as a way of kind of an introduction, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of, you know, what you do, your background and how how you got to where you are today. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm the director of advanced strategy at B plus H uh, advanced strategy, which is uh, our Seattle studio is part of a global organization of B plus H architects is, is, has a presence across North America and Asia. Okay. And uh, Seattle was actually the first U S office to, to open the first studio in the U S to open. And have been with them for about six years now. My background is in marketing, and I have worked in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry really all of my all of my career. Although interestingly, I started how I fell into marketing was I was temping out of school at Northumbrian Water, which is a big water authority in the northeast of of the UK where I'm from, and they privatized. And the way that they handled that was they went out and they bought a whole load of small engineering consultancies, not not necessarily small, actually, they went and bought a whole load of engineering consultancies, okay. environmental consultancies yep. across the globe. My background is as a linguist, I speak French and Spanish, and they happened to have some companies in France and Spain. And when I put the 
coffee on the director's desk and saw a book of Spanish next to him. And I, I spoke to him in Spanish and he said, oh, you speak Spanish? And I said, yes, and French. <laughs> okay. And he said, well, come and see me later. And, and that's how I fell into my job. And he said, well, we need a marketing person. And I said, oh, I don't know anything about marketing. And he said, well, you can learn. And uh, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And so you've uh, lived here now in uh, the Pacific Northwest for, for a while, but obviously the company and B plus H, the strategy group that, that, that you mentioned is not just focused on the West Coast, right? I mean, you guys sort of do stuff globally, correct? No, we do. We support our global organization. So the strategy team is, is based in Seattle, but we have worked on projects. They've worked in, on projects in Singapore and in Southeast Asia, in Canada, and, and several in, in the U.S. as well. So yeah, we support our global organization with our strategy offering. Yeah. And tell us a, a little bit about that. Like, What does that strategy offering entail and how is it different? How is it unique to the industry from what other architecture firms perhaps offer? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it's the reason that I ended up at B plus H because I have worked for, I've been in the Pacific Northwest for about 25 years and I worked for NBBJ, I've worked for Coghlan, Porter, Lundin, I've worked for Arif, I've worked for AECOM. So all very engineering and architecture design focused practices. And I was actually consulting at the time and Doug and I, Doug Demirs is the founder of B plus H's Seattle studio and the advanced strategy practice. And he and I go way back. We met at, and we were at MBBJ at the same time about 20 years ago. And so he'd asked for, he'd asked me to come in because he needed some marketing help. And and I thought, oh, you know, yeah, that's interesting. It'd be good. And I went to visit him and he told me about his vision for a different kind of practice, which was a practice that really began with defining what problem the client was trying to solve. And they got me at the answer to every problem isn't always a building, (laughs) which is an incredibly bold statement for an architect. And so he had me completely intrigued and his, he had, is an architect and his partner, Brian Crony is also an architect and they had both gone on to do different things. So Doug had moved into the commercial real estate world. He'd worked for Colliers for a while. He bounced around a lot And Brian left architecture school to go and do a master's in organizational design. And so they brought this different kind of thinking together and said, you know, there's a better way to do things. Let's start a studio with a a real strategic focus that's looking at what are the client's business objectives? What are their goals? What are their mission? How can real estate support that goal and that mission and that organizational mission rather than just saying, oh, okay, you need a lab building. Here's how we build lab buildings. We'll make it a great lab building, but it's going to be a lab building. So it's led to the creation of some really first of a kind projects that that haven't, you know, that, that, that didn't really exist before because there have been projects that were created to serve the business need or the purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your arrival to this particular role also was not a sort of a straight line from uh, Northumbria, right? I mean, no. <laughs> when when you and I spoke about this, I mean, you mentioned at one point, and you know, the reason I bring this up is because I I do think it's you know relevant to the sort of bigger picture. But you talked about you know having the need to sort of take some time off and kind of you know reconsider things as much as you're comfortable sort of sharing some of those thoughts and the you know motivations behind there. Tell us a little bit about that process, and kind of how it helped you, you know, focus on where you wanted to go next? Yeah, absolutely. Well, 
I came out to the US with my husband. My husband got a job offer. He's a physicist. He designs medical ultrasound equipment. And uh, he got a job out here. And, and I said, yeah, you know, um, my skills are portable. We'll, we'll go. I'll figure it out. And uh, one of the companies that Northumbrian Water owned was an architecture company. And I'd been really intrigued by them. So I thought, this is my opportunity to get into architecture. And I, that's how I landed at NBBJ. And it was really great. Loved working with them. But then after about three years there, I had my first child and I, I was the marketing director there. And it's, you know, it's, it's a big, that's a big job. They weren't global then, but they had offices all over the U.S. And I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't manage it. I still say to my husband, you have a two person job because you could not have had a family if I hadn't been here doing what I do behind <laughs> yeah, the scenes. Right, right. <laughs> Because he's, you know, he travels all over the world. He's gone a lot. He's got a really intense job. So there just wasn't room for two of us to be working that that, that intensity. So I, I went part-time, which in the U.S. is part-time is 30 hours a week, which is about what, what your average European works a week. <laughs> it's, it's full-time <laughs> on European terms, essentially. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, you just can't go back. You can't reduce the hours from a job that you've been doing full time, you just can't go back because you end up doing the same job for, for less, for less pay. Right. Right. So I, it wasn't working. And, uh, I, a friend of mine was, was moving on from her job at Coghlan Porter Landine. And she said, Oh, you should talk to Coghlan Porter Landine. And, uh, they were smaller, smaller company locally based, and they were looking for someone and they were willing to have that person work just three days a week. So, that was wonderful. And yeah. I, I, I went there and, and they were super supportive and it was just a fantastic experience all around. And that was great. And then I had my second child and I, I just, you know, again, that, that just wasn't working, but I really didn't want, I didn't want to get, you know, that awful term, you get mommy tracked. I really didn't want to fall out of the workplace because I, I had so many friends who'd done that and just couldn't get back in again. And I, I love my work. I love what I do. So another friend of mine uh, encouraged me to go out on my own and start just consult. So I rather scarily started my own consulting practice. I think I started with with one client, another ex, ex-NBBJ colleague yeah, who hired yeah. me for eight hours a week. And, um, I, you know, I built it up from there and I was doing that for 20 years and it was, it was so wonderful. I ended up with long-term clients on my own terms, was able to set my own schedule, do work that I loved. And I, I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate. Yeah. And, um, my youngest kid is leaving for college in September. So they've, they've been, you know, they've been grown and, and independent for quite, quite a few years now. And so that was when I met Doug, when it was when I was realizing they were independent. And I consulted with Doug for a while, but then they asked me to join full time. I thought about it. I honestly didn't think about it for very long because I thought now's the time I can do this. How many women at my point in their career have the door open to say, come back in, Sure. Come back, come join sure. us, build this. You know, it was almost as if I feel that I'm at the level I would have been if I'd if yeah. I'd never if I'd never left full time. And the reason I bring this up is I think, you know, this has been a story that, you know, really hit a lot of families yeah. during the pandemic, right? I mean, you you had the sort of great fortune of sort of 
having the flexibility and yeah. in a time to kind of, you know, do that while your yeah. kids were younger and, you know, that kind of thing. But but the industry, I think overall, and, and I'm sure, you know, you probably have more anecdotes and, you know, friends who mm-hmm. were impacted by this more. Did you did you think about that? Did you did you think about sort of as we were all kind of going through you know COVID and as I think you know moms and you know women in you know particular were mm-hmm. were, were impacted by the yes. by the pandemic in very yeah. sort of uh, you know different way than perhaps yeah. men were. What that meant for you know just women in real estate architecture overall. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've thought about it a lot, and I think I mean there's sort of it falls into two camps. There are the the women with with young children, school age children, who were really struggling with with the homeschooling and the the managing young children and trying to work with all the distractions in the house, and I think that was incredibly challenging yeah. for them. But then the ones who had older children uh, and and were able to sort of just be a little bit more independent, the kids didn't need constant supervision, have really found it to be quite beneficial because they've been there, they've been able to kind of make breakfast and lunch, but they've still been able to close it. And those, and again, it's to do with the environment as well. So those who are fortunate enough to be able to close the door on their workspace and get some work done have enjoyed a much greater degree of flexibility. We've actually done, we've, we've been working with a few clients uh, lately doing workplace surveys. And, and so I've actually got quite a bit of data and insight around this, both from our own internal workplace surveys and from ones we've done for clients. And the vast majority of of women, particularly women with families, report feeling more productive, being much more sort of feeling a better sense of balance. And uh, it's, it's been a it's been a great experience for them. And interestingly, the other group that has really benefited from ability to work remotely has been people of color. They are reporting a much more um, much more stress-free environment at home and the ability to concentrate and be productive. So Interesting. I, yeah, I think there are a lot, those groups that have hidden challenges that are not seen outside of the, the workplace, you know, that, that, so, you know, the, the, the woman who's been up since 5 a.m. packing lunches and, and getting kids ready for school and helping them with homework and driving them to school and, and still trying to get herself dressed and looking presentable and to work on time. That's before you even start your day, right? Right, right. And then, you know, people of color, I think, have, you know, again, uh, this is not something I can speak to. It's not my experience, but... But the, the microaggressions, the small, just all of the little things that go that that go into their day that that make their day more difficult, that just go away when you're in your own environment that you control and you're at home. Interesting. So, so what you're basically saying, your conclusion from some of your observation, whether it's anecdotal or semi-scientific, is that flexibility has been quite an interesting benefit, quite a yeah. kind of you know great change, sort of equalizer, if yeah. you will. For a lot of communities, perhaps, and maybe not communities, but certainly for a certain part of the demographic in the industry, right? Yeah. Which is very interesting. That that's kind of, which then begs the question: as these companies, you know, some of them have been more forceful about telling people you need to come back or you're going to get laid off or things like that. It really, sort of highlights kind of 
further uh, perhaps the in the inequality it sort of perpetuates perhaps the situation that we should have left behind years ago almost right absolutely and the other thing it's highlighted is this mythology that we carry around productivity i mean the idea that productivity is measured by you know bums on seats 40 hours a week plus <laughs> right it, it, that makes no sense whatsoever that that and it, and it, it's kind of this old industrial metaphor right you know where the at the end of the day the supervisor would walk to the end of the factory floor and make sure that there were 8000 widgets in the bucket and if you hadn't produced your 8000 widgets then you know your pay was docked and we've transferred that that measure <laughs> to knowledge work. Yeah. And knowledge work, which is what the vast majority of, uh, you know, of, 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 well, I shouldn't say the vast majority, but it's, it is a substantial part of our economy and is only going to continue to grow as automation sort of starts to, to take over the, the, anything that is routine, rules-based and, and standardized can be done by, by a machine, ultimately. So that leaves the brain power and the, the, the one unique thing, the knowledge that people bring being the thing that we, that we value. You, you don't measure that by hours. Um, and that's another, that's another thing from the findings that you, people can be so much more productive at home as they define it, because they know how much they have got done. They know whether they've done a good piece of work, whether they've been able to focus or not. So one of the clients that I've been working with has transitioned very successfully to remote working. And the, in the interviews and the surveys, workers are reporting that they are able to focus and be so much more productive. What that does is it makes them feel really good about the work that they're doing. So that is in turn translating into loyalty and engagement with their company. And that's something that we're hearing from, from employers are saying, well, wait, if you're not here, you're not engaged, we can't see you, we can't, uh, we can't be a company if you're not physically here. Yeah, but what we've found with this other client is it's quite the opposite. They feel so productive and so good about the work that they're doing that they're even more engaged and loyal to their employer because they're so appreciative of the ability to work remotely. So you guys are obviously working with, you know, companies you help uh, with their workplace strategies. Obviously, you help them with, mm -hmm. you know, their, you know, utilization of their office space. They're all mm -hmm. thinking about going back to work. You yourselves, yeah. you know, as a company were faced with some of these choices, how to return back to work. How do you guys compress all of this into uh, into sort of, you know, walking, walking the talk, if you will? Well, one of our mantras at, uh, in the strategy practice is one size misfits all. And I think <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, and we always, we always try to be the guinea pigs ourselves. So, so, uh, we, we started with ourselves and, and looking at what was working and what, what wasn't. Um, we are just starting to transition back into the office, but we are not asking people to come back, uh, full time. I think we're we're sort of testing out a, a two day two day a week in the office to start with. We're we're letting teams decide what works best for them. Uh, there's so, so sort of decentralized decision making because each team has different requirements and different needs. And the key sort of being communication. So a lot of our a lot of our new sort of uh, protocols that we've that we've come up with are around communication and. And just being able to make sure that people can get hold of you during certain core hours, right. because that seems to be what 
where the breakdowns and the frustrations happen is when people can't be reached. And so solving that problem. And then, you know, some of our clients are really focused on getting back into the office. And initially we were helping them with, with solutions that would allow them to remain safe and be be dis- suitably distanced and things. And as we transition out of that, a lot of what we're doing is is just making sure that the workplaces are as flexible as possible so that they can be reconfigured and set up for, for different for different needs. And then other clients that we're working with, um, as I say, have been so successful working remotely that they're, they're actually saying, well, we don't need all of this real estate. Like, we don't need this. So yeah. what should we do? And And we're helping them look at where should they be and how much space do they need and what would the purpose of that space be? It's really exciting, actually. I, I think REI, REI were, they're not a client of ours. I wish they were, yeah. <laughs> but they sort of led the charge, I think, when they were going to move into that um, new new space in the Spring District in, in Bellevue. And it was literally set up down to the pencil holders on the on the desk right. and they chose not to yeah and they chose not to do that they chose to move to, to a de- decentralized model and it's it was i thought it was so genius because not only does it allow their employees to stay closer to home but it their whole brand is about community and being outdoors so they were actually empowering their employees to live their brand in a more authentic way rather than require them to come into into a centralized office and commute you know and 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 that that sort of that sort of thing yeah 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 no that's that's very interesting jill one of the areas that you focus on is also around sustainability and you and i were joking earlier about you know how nice it is to be here in early july mid middle of july you know hitting the 50s again in the pacific northwest yeah and we also joked about the sort of heat dome that we just experienced but you know it begs the question obviously you know that climate change is is making a huge impact not just here locally, but also globally in ma- many different ways. You know, how is your practice, you know, responding to that? Well, it's always, you know, it's always central to to architecture, and I, I think the way that it has manifested to date has, you know, lead, lead, and well, and we have all of these different uh, prescriptions, yeah. uh, living, living building, and and that brings brings awareness to it, but the biggest impact from the pandemic has been this and this is this gives me hope i think because the nature of covid which is a respiratory disease and has been exacerbated so much by our environmental com- conditions has really drawn attention to the link between human health and our environment yeah. and the less healthy our environment is both internal and external the more vulnerable we are. And so we are, we are seeing a lot more interest from, from clients in biophilic responses, biophilic responses being responses that are in tune with nature, learn from nature, uh, are in harmony with nature, incorporate natural systems. So that's becoming a real driver of our internal environments as, uh, you know, access to natural light, access to fresh air, lots of greenery, lots of lots of air cleaning yeah. plants, um, natural materials, curved shapes, 
you know, one of our one of our designers is a is a sort of real expert in in mass timber and biophilic design, and, right. and he right. he talks about the the latest science that you know there's evidence that even just touching a piece of wood versus a piece of formica lowers the human stress hormone release. Okay. It, it <laughs> okay. low, it, 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 there is actually. So I guess what I'm saying is we actually have a physiological response to natural materials. Yeah, to nature in general. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I would agree with that. I mean, we live sort of close to a green belt, and I see it out of my window every morning, and it's uh, it's lovely. But you know, but yes. it's also me. I mean, I don't know, right? Uh, what I'm what I'm also curious about is back in the sort of late 2000s, you know, the extent of sustainable practices that a company included things like the black, the green, and the, you know, mm-hmm. blue bin inside the office, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. then yeah. D- during the last recession, the great sort of financial recession, if you will, we've yeah. focused on, uh, you know, accrediting people and, you know, getting, getting you know, yeah. building certified to lead standards. And it was sort of a nice to have in many ways. And, yes. I, and I remember these conversations around, yeah, but does it really pay off and all this other kind of stuff. But given kind of where things are today, and I want to sort of tie in one of your other titles mm. of uh, being a you know futurist you know do, mm. this is not this is not a uh, nice to have thing anymore no. I mean this is something and 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 are you seeing between your clients and sort of people that you interact with not just here locally but also globally you know is every project that you guys do today you know have some kind of sustainability component to it you know net zero hopefully you know energy production how is that world changing I th- I think it is. I think it's less, we're moving away from the prescribed, uh, you know, if you do this and this and this, you get X number of points. And so you lead gold. If you do this, you lead platinum, which was a great, you know, that was a great place to start. But what we're moving, what we're moving towards is a more systemic understanding of sustainability. And it's not also not just about the environment. It's, it's about uh, social equity. It's about racial equity. It's about uh, economic, new economic models that value the right things. I mean, we're we're seeing this even finally in the oil industry, for heaven's sake. You know, where where they're they're finally sort of coming under pressure from their shareholders to have yeah. a strategy to transition away from fossil fuels. And um, I mean, here in our region, Microsoft is a you know fabulous example leading the way they're organizing their whole sustainability strategy around the UN's sustainable development goals. So they're really looking very holistically at what they should be doing as an organization. So I would say it's not everybody who's who's thinking that way. Yeah. I think the commercial real estate world has a lot of catching up to do, but it is and I, I, I do believe that it's the people who are thinking this way who are going to be the winners at, at, at the end of the day, because uh, there's just we're running out of time, and there's just not there's just not room for business as usual. So the, the people that are really embracing the the, the 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 urgent imperative of climate change and our social issues and the economic imbalance are ultimately going to be paving the way for new models that are, that are going to be successful. I have to believe that. <laughs> I have yeah, to believe yeah, that for my yeah. children's sake. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, of course. And and another kind of you know, curious question that I have about this is as, as you see younger people entering the industry, whether it's architecture or you know development, right? 
you know, it seems to me just by the fact that I'm a parent of a teenager, yeah. that that generation is definitely more focused on things that maybe ours wasn't. And I'm, you know, curious, you know, are, are you even seeing the younger generation not go work for companies because they don't have that, you know, sustainability or that kind of global consciousness tied up? And they're basically saying, I'm not going to work for you because you guys don't even understand that this is really impacting what's going to change the world in the future, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we are just beginning to feel the impact of that because Gen Z hate the labels, but <laughs> for you know uh, convenience sake, the new generation who's leaving school now or yep. in college now yep. and entering the workforce, they're not like us. They have different values. They have different expectations. They grew up in a world with climate change as a as a stark reality in in their lives for the most part. They've just lived through this pandemic. They've lived through uh, racial justice revelation in, sure. in America that's really started to wake people up. And they really, they've really engaged with that. That's their, that's their reality. They're much more diverse. They're the most diverse group, at least in the, in the U.S. They're the most diverse group of, of the most diverse generation we've, we've ever had. So they bring a broad range of perspectives and experiences much more diverse than ours were. And yes, I mean, all of the evidence suggests that they would take less money in order to work for a company that is on a mission that's in, a, in line with their values. They want to do work that matters. They want to make a difference in the world. They're also digital natives. They're yeah. super tech yeah. savvy. So they want to work for companies that have the most cutting edge technology because they truly believe that technology is going to help solve problems, not just you know, environmental problems, but social problems and all sort of stuff. I mean, they put a lot of faith in, in, in technology. So they want, they want the best. Yeah. And then they've also, I forget the, uh, I forget the percentage, but from a late report on the future of jobs from, I think it was the World Economic Forum, there is a staggering number of children in school right now who don't want to work for a company at all. They want to carve their own path in life. And so they want to be entrepreneurs or independent contributors. And actually, there was a great op-ed by Thomas Friedman, who everything he says is, is just always so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> He's with the New York Times, right? Yeah, so in the New York Times. And it was, it was uh, maybe sort of uh, it was a few months ago. But he was talking about this and the massive impact that, that, that it's going to have because people don't want to necessarily work for companies. And one of the things he said is that in terms of what that means for the U.S., portable healthcare and portable pensions are going to be critical because employees, employers are not going to be able to count on having somebody over an extended period of time. They're going to have people coming in and out, moving on and doing things. And actually, I, I think that's great because you stay in a company for an extended period of time, no matter how great the company is, no matter how great you are, you get stale because you're yeah. not exposed yeah. to those different perspectives. Yep. So if we have people, you know, moving around more mobile, getting more diverse experience, I think that that's a, that's a recipe for success for solving some of these thorny problems that we've got, to, we've got to wrap uh, our arms around. Hundred percent agreed, and I, and I we won't get into the whole healthcare discussion here, but no. I, I couldn't agree <laughs> more. Um, <laughs> you know, certainly as an entrepreneur who you know lost a couple of jobs in his lifetime as well, you know, feeling the pinch of that 
Cobra expiring or whatever that system is, um, it's really terrible. And I mean, it's just inhumane, I mean, to a certain degree. But anyway, we'll we'll leave that yeah. for another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Given sort of everything that's happened during the pandemic and in the last, you know, 18, 18 months or so, and I know this is like such a trite question, but, you know, what are the trends that you've identified and, you know, things like that? Um, I, I would really like to sort of, you know, maybe talk about some of the stuff that, that you think is going to be permanent that maybe people are not talking about. What would those things be? Well... I do think that this disruption to the way that we expect to work is permanent. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would disagree with that. There are there are some companies that still think, you know, a return to normal is going to happen. But I think the majority understand that, that this means something different. And so we're going to have to we're going to have to ride that one out. Also, we talked about it, but it, it's going to have a huge impact is the, it, the, the next generation coming into the into the world of world of work with different values and expectations the biggest unknown is the extent and and we have seen how quickly we can adapt uh, adopt new technology during covid because we were forced to so covid sort of created this giant global experiment um it was it was just you know as a as a researcher and somebody who kind of is constantly thinking about the future it was absolutely fascinating we were all in our own living lab yeah. seeing how quickly people took to technologies that they never used before i mean all our grandparents are now you know zoom friendly and, and <laughs> that's right I, it's pretty phenomenal right, right but if you think about that and how quickly it can be done and and so the technology's been there for a long time we just weren't willing to adopt it what we saw was what happens when you do adopt the available technology, and that technology is advancing all of the time. So think about that. The world in five years' time is going to look nothing like it does right Agreed. now. There are yeah. going to be jobs that we haven't thought of. There are going to be – we said we weren't going to talk about healthcare, but I'll, I'll keep it in the, in the practical realm. The migration to telehealth has been enormous. Yes, so yeah, there, yeah. Are, there is going to be massive savings uh, in in healthcare through transitioning to telehealth, and it's it's creating all sorts of opportunities. And actually, we're, some of our some of our healthcare clients we've been working with, we're working with them because where it always used to be about patient facing clinical space, the space that they're in is now more more akin to a workplace. So we're actually doing workplace strategies for our healthcare clients who are like. How do we keep our how do we keep our employees happy? How do we give them what they need? Because they're not seeing as many patients in the clinics. Yep, they right. can serve them elsewhere. Yeah. So so that's just sort of one immediate impact. But imagine the ramifications of that as it plays out. Yeah. And then the other thing I think is our, you know, our down our downtowns where we had these monolithic buildings that were monuments to company A, company B. And they're standing empty and, you know, with the best will in the world, I don't see them filling back up again with all the same people. So I I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in our downtowns in terms of, I'm actually very excited. I think it creates the opportunity for a whole new mix of activities. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been to Asia, Asian downtown experience is so incredibly vibrant and it's, it's because it all the things are in all the towers. So yeah. everything's mixed up and jumbled up and, and people live live there. And it, it feels like a real, you know, it's, it's always bustling and busy. 
because people live in the places where they work and shop and play and, you know, and, 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 whereas we tended to silo it here. Right. Right. In, in the US. Um, and, and actually in London, the, in the square mile, the center of London, they. Yeah, the city, the a, sort of financial area. Yeah, yeah, yes, the yeah. financial area. They have a scheme to convert office towers into public housing. Interesting. They're working on that right now. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So there's been a lot of talk about our, the suburban resurgence and people moving to the Zoom towns, which, which is exciting because that, you know, well, it's good and bad, right? It, it, because it's also creating a lot of imbalance when it's the people with the means who do it right. and push out the, the locals. But we're not looking so much at the possibilities of our downtowns, and I think that could be there could be some really interesting stuff happening. Yeah, there. interesting. Yeah, there's this whole notion about the you know the 15, 20 minute city, which I think is yeah. kind of emergent, right? And more yeah. and more, it's becoming more of a relevant topic. And I'm also curious, so given some of these trends that, that you've identified, like, are you noticing them, you know, seep into the conversations that you have with your clients and sort of how you are helping them think about, you know, the future also and, you know, design offices? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We did some work with IWG, which is the the big yeah, London-based yeah, yeah. group. They own Regis and yeah, so so we were helping them sort of envision the the fifteen minute city because they have a vision of having a, a they call it flex work a flex yep. workspace um, in every village and town across the UK and every small town across the US because they see the opportunity again people are not going to go back into the downtown core on a daily basis to work so they want options close to home yep. and they still want to get together and have the means to to work and back to the comment I made earlier about the experience of working from home, which was so much better for people who had a room where they could go and close a door than people who didn't have anywhere else to go. So they're still going to want to stay and work close to home. But if they don't have that in their houses, they're going to probably, it would be nice to have it around the corner above the local coffee shop or something. So that's been something that we've been talking about a lot. And interestingly, I was uh, also been having conversations with the um, Center for Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington, okay. and they've been doing some really interesting work around uh, po learning pods and and all of the different ways that communities and school districts and individuals organize to provide learning support during COVID when children weren't in school. Yes, and a lot yeah. of these small environments have been really, really successful. And they've got a lot of very exciting ideas around how that could, could manifest. And what I realized is in all the conversations we've been having with IWG about the 15-minute city and all of the imagining you know, oh, you're going to have your coffee shop and you're going to have your this and your that and the other. We were still always imagining that there would be a school nearby. And then after talking with, with the people at the UW and thinking some more about this, what we're not factoring in is what if the school doesn't look like a school anymore? Yeah. What if the school yeah. is broken up and distributed throughout the communities? Yeah. And, and so we're, that, those dots haven't been connected yet, but there's something really intriguing there. I'm I'm with you, and my kids were forced to do online schooling all of last year, and mm -hmm. th there was actually some benefit to that, just given the flexibility and sort of consistency of it, actually, yep. which surprised my wife and me, which I think is you know not something that we should just walk away from. I but agree. We'll we'll see. We'll see how yeah, how, how that some, evolves. Some yeah, key learnings there, and and you know talk uh, to connect our fifteen minute 
city discussion to the down, earlier downtown discussion, one of the things I've been uh, I've been talking about and, and trying to get some of our designers to to start imagining is the fifteen minute tower. What happens if you turn that city through ninety degrees? Mm-hmm. Right. You and you put all of those things in a tower, and you have this incredibly vibrant mix in there, um, rather than a monolithic use. I agree. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful idea. <laughs> So, uh, Jill, as we kind of close our conversation here, you know, one of the things that I think about is kind of like, you know, uh, you know, times of challenge are times of opportunity also. And, and I'm curious sort of what opportunities in everything that we've talked about today is stuff do you see in uh, your business with B plus H? So I think what we've realized is that we have, uh, we have a very strong interiors practice and we have a a really fabulous experiential graphic design team and what we're what we're realizing is that there is so much opportunity at the intersection of the physical and the digital and the more we live our lives online the more we crave physical gathering spaces and places to come together and but those spaces aren't going to necessarily look the way they have in the past. Right. So we're really excited to be exploring the different manifestations of, of, of that um, and really collaborating with our, with our experiential design people to, to think about that. And by the same token, uh, the physical spaces where we are can all be enhanced by the digital uh, you know, and that's a scary. That's a scary trend we haven't talked about. But we're not that far from having the ability to plant this stuff in our heads, so that we're not even going to be accessing the digital world via glasses and goggles. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I personally don't want to think about that future, but the fact that it's even possible is 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 something we should should be aware of. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's where where we're really focused on that, and also on the topic that you brought up earlier, the biophilic connection. So I think the more that we think about our environments as systems versus places, and think about the connections between them, and how we want to move between the physical, the digital, the next door, the further away. That's that's the space that we're really really excited about seeing develop. Interesting. And then as my final question, and I kind of like to ask this, just you know, given everything that's sort of happened, everything that we've experienced over the last year and a half, and the future that we have in front of us, you know, what what gives you hope? My kids. I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit, and and just the conversations you mentioned having with your daughter, and and the conversations that I have with mine, they want to make a difference, and they've grown up seeing these problems, and they're super motivated to uh, to fix it, and and so I feel that our job at this point is to get out of their way, get out of their way, and help them do whatever it is they need to do, help them fly. Because we're not going to solve these problems. We've had our chance. It's time to move over and let them lead. Couldn't agree more, Jill. This was a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, yeah, stay well and uh, be safe. I've really enjoyed it, but you've challenged me as you always do. So thank you. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to the Real Perspectives podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry, and we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business. Thank you.